Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the HypnoDojo, a place of learning for practitioners and students of hypnotherapy. Get your black belts in all things hypnotherapy as we whip into shape your mindset, mastery, and marketing. Relax, enjoy, learn. Here's your sensei, Linda Campbell. Hi, I'm Linda Campbell, and thanks for tuning in to the Hypno Dojo. I am the president of the Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators, and I run my own hypnotherapy school, the Horizon Center School of Hypnotherapy. And I'm excited to talk about this topic. We've been covering complex trauma for the last two shows. This will be show number three. And I feel like this is a topic I could talk about until the cows come home. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there'll be an episode four or five or six. So just as a brief recap, you have experienced complex trauma if you have had an ongoing series of situations where you felt unsafe. Typically, this takes place in childhood. So examples, growing up with an unpredictable parent, maybe a parent who was suffering with addiction or a parent who had a mental illness or a parent who was a rageaholic on occasion, any situation where you didn't know when or where the next you know, negative thing was going to happen, and so you had to be on guard all the time. Uh, an example of this, again, another example might be growing up in an environment with neglect or abandonment, an environment where there was a lot of criticism, where you were made to feel less than. So any ongoing series of situations where you felt unsafe. And there are a lot of common characteristics and coping mechanisms that people with com- complex trauma present with. So one of the major things that I'll see in my clients is hypervigilance. Uh, if you've grown up in an environment where you have felt unsafe and the subconscious doesn't know that there's such thing as passage of time, then in order to deal with that lack of safety in your upbringing, in your environment, you'll be hypervigilant. You'll be on guard, again, ready for the next attack, the next unpredictable you know, outburst from whomever is the dangerous person. And so the job of the subconscious is to protect you. And so the fight-flight response will be activated if there's a potential danger in your environment And then, again, because the subconscious doesn't understand that you're now grown up, you're in a different situation, you're no longer there, that hypervigilance will persist. Another common characteristic that we'll see in a person with complex trauma would be a lack of trust. And, of course, this would make sense if the people who were supposed to be wired to take care of you and protect you and treat you kindly are mistreating you or are neglecting you or are not present then you're not going to trust other people. If you can't expect the people who are supposed to love you to take care of you, then how can you expect anybody else to take care of you? So we'll often see people who struggle with trust. Uh, There may be a lot of shame in people with complex trauma. And again, this makes sense. If you look at, you know, the mentality of a kid who's in this type of a situation, when we're kids, we don't have the ability to step back from a situation and go, oh, maybe this person has their own problems. Maybe what they're doing to me actually has nothing to do with me, right? Uh, kids are egocentric, so everything has to do with them in their minds. They don't have the ability to look very objectively at what's going on. They make it about themselves. If the person who's supposed to be taking care of me isn't taking care of me, it must be because I'm not worth taking care of. And then that, again, can lead to feelings of shame. 
And, of course, that can also lead to poor self-worth and self-esteem and feeling like you're not valued. And then I see that becoming other things as well. So I see a lot of perfectionism. I see a lot of people-pleasing. I see a lot of having to take care of other people in people with complex trauma. And, again, the way that plays out is if the person who is supposed to be taking care of me isn't taking care of me, the problem must be me. Therefore, I have to be different. I've got to be more. I've got to try harder. I've got to be better. I've got to do something in order to earn their approval. So we'll strive to be better somehow. But because the problem was never really about how good you were, it was about the other person, they're still mistreating you. So then you've got to try even harder, be even more. <laughs> so this pattern of perfectionism gets set up. The people-pleasing comes out of this same uh, this same. Uh, thing that's occurring, for lack of a better word. So if the person who is supposed to take care of you isn't taking care of you, you're going to try to figure out, not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously, what you need to do to make that person happy. How can you prevent them mistreating you? How can you get them to take better care of you? You've got to figure out how to please them, how to make them happy. And of course, the pattern of having to take care of other people develops out of this as well. I'm dependent on this big person to take care of me. This person isn't taking care of me. Maybe if I can make them happy, maybe if I can improve their life somehow, they'll be stable enough to take care of me. So we see this you know, poor self-worth, poor self-esteem, uh, a need to please other people, a need to take care of other people, and a need to be perfect. And then, of, cor- of course, there's a lot of beliefs that develop as a result of ongoing trauma. Again, if the people who are supposed to be taking care of you are not taking care of you, what you will tell yourself at that time is, I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, I'm not enough, it's my fault, I'm not safe, I'm powerless, I'm defenseless. And so you see a lot of these core beliefs in somebody with complex trauma. It shows up in other areas of their life by the time they've come to see you. Feeling like you're not worthy may mean that you're not going for the job that you want or you're, you don't think that you're good enough to be in a relationship so, or you're, you know, combine that with not trusting people, you may have difficulty with intimacy. So there's a lot of core beliefs that develop out of a person having complex trauma. They may also believe that... Um, They can't deal with, or they may also have a difficulty dealing with authorities. And again, the subconscious works by association. If the people who were the authorities in your life were hurting you or mistreating you, then the subconscious is going to expect that other people in a position of authority will do the same. And so there may be, you know, difficulty with dealing with authorities. There could also be things like fear of success. If a person has not had a whole lot of successes growing up, then success can get a negative association. Fear of change, if you live with an unpredictable person, if there are, you know, irregular outbursts, then change can seem really scary. In fact, there can also be a fear of stability. There's always this, you know, the shoe is going to drop at any moment. You know, you've got to be cautious when it's calm because something bad can happen at any moment. So you see fear of success, fear of change, fear of stability, of course, fear of the unknown, Uh, And you can also see patterns of self-sabotage. So, again, if a person has a belief that they're not worthy because the people who are supposed to take care of them weren't taking care of them, then they may think that they're not deserving of love, happiness, health, whatever. And so you'll see them sabotaging their own behavior. 
uh, people who have had a lot of complex trauma or who have had complex trauma can also be drawn to risky behavior and chaos. So they may have a lot of chaotic relationships. They may be, you know, gamblers or, you know, just do things that are risky. Where does this come from? If you're living in an environment where there is instability, unpredictability, where there's chaos, your fight-flight response is going off a lot. You get used to having a certain amount of adrenaline in your system. And then your body thinks that that level of adrenaline is normal. So when your adrenaline levels go back to what is actually normal, it feels like something's off. And so because these people get so used to that high level of adrenaline, they will seek out activities that cause that adrenaline to spike again. Hence, risky behaviors, chaotic relationships. So unhealthy homes have a lot of highs and lows, and again, people get used to that fight-flight response. They get used to those highs and lows. It begins to feel normal. They may also be drawn into relationships where there is a similar pattern of neglect or abuse or criticism or whatever. So when we're growing up, we get from our parents an imprint in our psyche what love feels like. So if you had a parent who is critical or abusive or who is an addict or what have you, your subconscious goes, oh, that's love. So you could look into a sea of people, and some part of you will recognize the person in that crowd who has that particular character. And anybody else, the person who on paper would be a really good fit for you, just doesn't make your socks roll up and down, just doesn't get you excited. So you'll see people often recreating in their relationships a similar dynamic, a similar pattern as they had growing up with their parents. So these are some of the common characteristics that we see in people who have had complex trauma. And there's also coping mechanisms that we'll see. Uh, So when we're kids, if we're in this environment where we're constantly unsafe, we have to find ways to survive. And back then, we don't have a whole lot of options available to us. We can't leave the situation. Where would we go? What would we do? So we pick up coping mechanisms that are suitable for that time, and again, because the subconscious is illogical and doesn't understand that time has passed, those coping mechanisms may be sustained long after we're out of that threatening environment, even if our life is safe. So I'll get a client from time to time who says to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've got a really good life. You know, I've got a good relationship. I've got stability. I'm making money. I've got a decent job. And yet I'm constantly on edge. I'm constantly waiting for things to fall apart. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still anxious and there's nothing I should be anxious about. So when you hear that kind of language, start asking some questions about their upbringing, about their background, because it could just be that the chaos or the trauma in their background has uh, flicked on that hypervigilance and it's still persisting and has also caused the person to continue using strategies for coping that were set up way back then. They're not able to really appreciate what's going on in their lives now because they're still anticipating something negative happening. And so some of the coping mechanisms that we will see in people with complex trauma, one of them is numbing. So this can lead to behaviors like cutting or some other self-destructive behavior. Uh, Cutting is often misunderstood. People will think it's an effort to 
commit suicide, that sort of thing. But it's usually not that at all. It's actually a way to feel. The person is so numb. If being in your body has been unsafe because you've had sexual trauma or somebody has been abusive towards you or you've been neglected and you're hungry or whatever, if being in your body is unsafe or threatening, then you'll learn to numb your feelings, to kind of not be in your body, to dissociate. And so sometimes as a way of trying to feel something, people will engage in self-harming behavior because it gives them a way to feel. They have to have some really intense feeling in order to feel anything at all. So numbing is one of the things that we'll see in people with complex trauma. Another one will be isolating. Again, if somebody can't trust the people who are supposed to take care of them, thereby they can't trust anybody because people who aren't wired to take care of them aren't going to do so either, then the strategy will be build walls around yourself, avoid people, stay safe, isolate. Uh, Social anxiety may be part of this. The subconscious is saying, well, that person was a threat, so maybe any person is a threat I know the solution is let's just not go out, let's stay home. So you'll see numbing, isolating, social anxiety. You may see people kind of wearing a mask. So they're afraid to be seen for who they are because they feel that they aren't worthy. And so they're pretenders. From the outside, these people may look successful and happy and gregarious and well-adjusted. But if you get an opportunity to peek behind the mask and see what's actually going on behind the scenes, then you'll see that, in fact, that mask is a pretense, is a way of not letting people see what you believe about yourself, which is essentially that you don't have value. And so we'll see the the mask wearing. Uh, Also, a similar thing, creating a perfect image. Uh, And again, I alluded to this earlier. If I think I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, then I'm going to try to be better. So I'm really going to strive. I'm going to really, you know, try to put on this perfect image and present myself a certain way so that I can somehow feel like enough. I also mentioned earlier the people-pleasing pattern. Uh, Another thing that we'll see as a strategy for coping is just giving up, right? No matter what I do, I don't seem to get the love or the acceptance or the care that I need, so why even bother? So you'll see people who have kind of thrown their hands in the air. You'll also see a lot of disconnection from feelings. So again, um, there's a lot of negative associations to these feelings of shame and pain. If shame equals pain and love equals pain and people equal pain and expressing yourself equals pain, then why feel anything? So again, you'll see people disconnecting from their feelings. If feelings have been painful in the past, then why would we want to put ourselves through that again? And as well as Separating from feelings, I mentioned earlier, separating from your body. People actually have a hard time feeling as though they're in their bodies. So you'll hear things like people uh, saying that it's as though they're witnessing what's occurring from a different vantage point. So you're having an experience, but you're observing yourself having the experience. This is common with people with sexual trauma. If you've had sexual trauma and you can't get the person away from you, then the only other option is to get away from them. So you can't physically get up and go because they're bigger and stronger and and you're uh, disempowered. So you just kind of remove yourself energetically, I guess, from your body and observe what's happening from a safe vantage point. But again, because the subconscious is primarily protective, if your coping mechanism has been to be out of body, essentially, that can continue even though the unsafe situation has passed. 
we also see people attempting to be liked through a lot of uh, different strategies, such as focusing on beauty or appearance, focusing on having a perfect body, working out, uh, being sexually promiscuous, trying to get love or affection or attention uh, through our sexual intimacy, uh, focusing on money. If I have money, then I must be valuable. I must be worthy. Focusing on possessions, career, position, uh, all these are about having a need to prove oneself. If I generally feel like I am worthless, like I don't have any value because of how I was treated growing up, then I'm trying to prove to myself or prove to other people that I have value by pursuing all of these things that our society tends to look at as signs of being successful. And so these are some of the common things that you'll see in a client with complex trauma. And I just wanted to mention some of that so when you're interviewing people, when you're talking to them, or maybe you're listening to this thinking, maybe I've suffered complex trauma, you, you'll, you'll know what to listen for. So how do we address a person or how do we help a person who has complex trauma? So I mentioned earlier that I've done three shows on this topic already. Show number two, if you look into iTunes, look for my name or look for the Hypno Dojo. There is a show that is labeled a complex trauma part two, and that show, the bulk of it is me going through different strategies for working with complex trauma. My time ran out during that show, so I'm going to give you a few more methods, but I would really recommend going back and having a listen to part two. So some more methods for dealing with complex trauma. Well, if you look at all the different coping mechanisms and the different characteristics and the different belief systems that people have when they've experienced complex trauma, essentially what we're doing when we're helping somebody is trying to reverse all of that. So, for example, a person may uh, try to be liked, as I was just mentioning, by focusing on their body or focusing on money or focusing on career and position, uh, trying to create a certain image that they think is going to be uh, you know, attractive to other people, acceptable to other people. And so in this case, we're helping the client to develop a sense of self-worth, to recognize that their value is not determined by something they achieve or something they own or by their physical appearance, but in fact that their value is intrinsic. Um, one of the examples that I use, and this works really well with uh, people who have babies, is I will ask them in hypnosis, when did you start loving your baby? <laughs> and, of course, most people are like, gee, before it was even born. It's like, oh, so it didn't have to reach a milestone. It didn't have to get its first day in school or its first gold star for doing a great art project in school. You actually loved the baby before you knew any of its personality traits, any of its talents or skills, any of its characteristics. You loved it before it proved anything to you or achieved anything. It didn't have to reach some milestone in order for you to love the baby. And so isn't it possible to love yourself despite any achievements or regardless of any achievements? So it points out to the person, obviously, that self-love is not predicated on the things that you accomplished, that your worth is intrinsic. It was there before you came into the world just because you exist. So when somebody is using all of those external, external factors to try to prove to themselves or to other people that they're worthy, we're getting them to accept their level of worth as just a given without having to pursue any of those other things. Now, sometimes when I talk about that, people get a little scared. They're like, well, if I didn't have the uh, 
feeling of low self-worth to drive me to be successful in my business, if I just loved myself because I exist, then am I just going to sit around on the couch and do nothing, slack off, not achieve anything in my life? (laughs) No, of course not. You'll still be motivated to accomplish things, but the driving force underneath it is going to be a different driving force. It's not going to be that you feel such a low level of self-worth that you feel you need to accomplish things or accumulate things in order to be enough. You'll care for yourself and love yourself despite your accomplishments or the things you own. You'll be motivated to accomplish, to succeed, because you want to put your gifts and talents into the world, because you have passions, because you want to serve the world in some way, because it excites you. So there's a different driving force. It's not you feeling worthless and therefore you have to do something to be better. It's that you love yourself and appreciate yourself and you're working on your achievements because it feels good to do so. I hope that that differentiation makes sense. Uh, Another thing that we might do with somebody in hypnosis to help them, if a person is using distraction or avoidance as a way of coping, So again, if it feels threatening to be in your body or threatening to deal with your emotions, then people will do a lot of different activities to kind of check out or or substances. So I see a lot of different things. I have one client who's basically attached to a screen her entire morning or entire day. She wakes up in the morning. The first thing she does is checks her phone, which happens to be in bed with her. She sleeps with it at night. And then all day long, she's either playing games or checking out Facebook or watching YouTube videos. The only time that she really doesn't have her phone on is when she's working. But even then, on her breaks or when she can get an opportunity, she's going in and just seeing what's going on in the world. And admittedly, she has talk to me about how this is really a way to avoid feeling. If she gives herself a break, if she sits in quiet for a little while, all of the stuff that she hasn't processed or dealt with starts to come up, and it's painful. And people are a little funny. We like to feel good. We don't like to feel bad. So when we start feeling bad, we're going to try to do something in order to feel better or to not feel what we're feeling. And so for her, the phone is a way of keeping herself engaged, keeping herself distracted, distracted, so that she can avoid what she's feeling underneath the surface. And, of course, substitute phone for any activity. It could be eating. It could be work. It could be shopping. It could be the Internet. It could be social media. It could be drugs, alcohol. It could be anything. So if you have a client who's engaging in some kind of distraction or avoidance behavior, using activity or substances because being here, actually being present, is unsafe, then, of course, what we want to do is help the client to be able to be present. We want to build up their belief in their resiliency, their belief in their ability to, you know, deal with what they're feeling to handle whatever arises. We want to encourage the client to feel whatever it is needs to be felt in order to heal. One of my clients said to me once, and I have repeated this so many times because it's absolutely true, what we don't deal with waits for us. And sometimes people think, well, if I distract myself, if I avoid this, <laughs> eventually it's going to go away, right? Now nah, it doesn't work that way. The subconscious doesn't understand passage of time. So if you've got some unprocessed emotion, some pain that you haven't worked through, it just kind of sits there in the background waiting and waiting for an opportunity to be dealt with. And this is why people have to constantly distract themselves and avoid themselves because if it has even a, you know, a brief opportunity to sneak out and get your attention, it does. 
So, again, we're working with a client on turning and facing that stuff. Instead of using distraction or avoidance to, to keep from feeling, allowing that feeling to come through and trusting that they can handle it. We also may be working with somebody who tends to dissociate on getting them back into their body. So again, if it's been unsafe to be in your body because you've been hurt, you've been traumatized, there's been some abuse, then people will check out a lot. So we want to work with them on feeling safe in their body, being aware of the body, and of course, ultimately feeling safe in the world. So in some cases, even just beginning with having the client in hypnosis describe what's going on inside their body. Now, some people are so checked out, they don't recognize things like, you know, sensations of hunger or uh, sensations of being tired or sensations of being stressed. They really don't know how to connect with what's going on in their body. So even a simple exercise of having them tune in, what are you experiencing? Is there any tightness? Is there heaviness? Is there any discomfort? Is there a place where your clothing feels uncomfortable, too tight, what have you? Just noticing whatever it is you're experiencing so that you're beginning to tune into your body again. And that's the case as well with tuning into emotions, getting people to recognize and describe what emotions feel like in their body. So again, oftentimes people have numbed out. It's been unsafe to feel, so they don't allow themselves to feel. And the negative here is you can't selectively not feel. You can't just not feel the bad stuff. If you've um, decided you're not going to feel, if the subconscious thinks feeling is unsafe for you, you're also not going to feel the good stuff. So these people experience quite a flat line of emotion, So they're not getting any lows, but they're also not getting any highs. They don't feel passion. They don't feel desire. They don't feel excitement. They don't feel enthusiasm. They don't feel joy because they're trying to avoid feeling pain, and you have to not feel at all if you're going to not feel. And so even getting a person to tap into what they're feeling, how emotions show up in their body. So, for example, if one person feeling angry might feel kind of a knot in their stomach or a tension in their chest or you know, a burning somewhere, emotions and have sensations that are linked to them. So getting them to tune into what's happening in the body and then figure out what emotion that is. So getting them associated with their body again, sensing feelings, sensing emotions, and sensing sensations. Also talking to the client and helping them to meet the needs that their body has. So again, if you've been dissociated and you're not paying attention to what it feels like to be hungry or what it feels like to be tired. People get really disconnected from what their needs are and how to meet them. And so getting them tuning back in, what does it feel like when you're tired? What does your body do to communicate hunger to you? Being able to recognize and respond to those signals can be like a a great win for the client who's been disconnected from their body. Now, because a lot of this trauma occurs when we're kids, Uh, one of the things that we may be working on with people is helping them to set boundaries, helping them to say no, helping them to advocate for themselves. When you think about it, kids get a lot of uh, touch, and I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, abuse or sexual touch, just touch in general, Uh, and are never told that they can say no to it. We're basically taught that we have to tolerate it. So this might be somebody changing us into our jammies in a way that is too abrupt or painful or brushing our teeth in a way that hurts. When we're kids, we're told, go sit on, you know, go sit on Santa's lap, go give Auntie Marge a hug, 
or you know we're ha- we have to put up with somebody else changing us or bathing us. So right from the time we're little, we are taught to tolerate touch that we don't particularly want, that we don't like. Add into that a client who's got complex trauma, who may be has been abused, or maybe has had some kind of sexual trauma. So there's a lot of stuff around boundaries, you know. Uh, if you're conditioned from the time you're a kid to let people touch you and, how, and to put up with uncomfortable touch, then it can be really useful as an adult when we're doing this therapy to help them to recognize what they like, what they don't like, what their boundaries are, what their limitations are, what they will allow, what they won't allow, and to be able to express that. So working on saying no, working on recognizing where your limits are, working on communicating those limits to other people, being able to advocate for oneself. And I talked earlier about the patterns of perfectionism and people-pleasing. So again, one of the areas we might be working in with hypnotherapy would be to eliminate people-pleasing, help people to recognize the person that they need to please the most is themselves, and to let go of having to do things for other people, having to make other people happy as a way of proving their worth or getting that acceptance back. So every one of those characteristics and uh, coping mechanisms and beliefs that I mentioned earlier is fodder for work that we would do in hypnosis. So whether that work through some sort of intervention or through what I call hypnotic argument, presenting a case for thinking differently or doing differently or helping the client to come up with other strategies uh, so that they don't have to use their old coping mechanisms, there's so many things that we can do for a person who has complex trauma. Wow, that half hour just whizzed by so quickly. We are at the end of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, if you have a topic that you'd be interested in knowing more about or if you have any please do contact me. You can get a hold of me through the Blog Talk Radio um, page or you can contact me. My email address is info at horizoncenterhypnotherapy.com or you can give me a call at 250-382-2485. If you're interested in hypnotherapy training, give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to you about my program. I offer a course in Victoria. The next class is starting September 29th, 30th, 2018. And I also offer an interactive online course. We actually see each other, talk to each other. Uh, you're, you're working with your classmates throughout the program as opposed to it being a, a self-run course. So get in touch with me if you're interested in training or if you're looking for certification, I can hook you up there as well. Tuning in. Bye-bye. Okay, take one. (laughs) With corrections with Campbell. 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 Get your black belt in all things hypnotherapy and never blend.